Good morning, everyone. Uh, we can open up to the Gospel of John. We're in chapter 19. We've been walking through the Gospel of John together for some time, and we are nearing the end. We are um, we come to the, the cross, the crucifixion, at a unique time when we're no, normally celebrating his, his birth. Uh, but I think that that is very appropriate. The, this is why Jesus came. This is why he became a baby for this moment. And so we, we will understand what Jesus is like as we examine this text. So we're covering a good amount of verses this morning, 1 through 16. And uh, I've entitled this sermon, Behold the man. Behold the man. While you're getting there, uh, getting settled, I just want to remind you of a few things for our kind of Christmas services. So we have our last um, kind of Advent service tonight in the, in the hall right behind us um, from 6.30 to 7.30. We just sing some carols. Uh, we open the word. We actually have a little bit of a prayer meeting, and it's just a sweet time to get together um, where we actually kind of try and set the whole day aside as the Lord's day, and um, it's just a really sweet time. So I want to encourage you guys to come out for that. Then on Christmas Eve, um, what we have actually been able to work out with the, the Lutherans here, they have a service of their own, but they've allowed us to also just meet in the hall the same, more or less uh, a little bit earlier than them, but pretty much the same time. So we just want to be gracious guests, but we're going to be inside because it likely will rain or, you know, if you've looked at the forecast, rain is like all over the place. So we're just planning on being in the hall from four to like 4.45, just a sweet time of singing, worshiping, fellowship, um, hearing God's word together. And then just as a heads up, uh, the Sunday after Christmas, so you know, next Sunday, again, rain looks possible, maybe likely on the forecast. So our rainy day uh, plan is the Friday night before Sunday, right? So that would be Christmas Eve. We will look at, at the forecast and make a final decision Friday night. That way, um, you guys can be informed. You'll have like 24 hours or so to have a heads up. And what we are going to do is have two services, again, in the hall. It won't fit all of us. We'll just kind of cram in there. So they'll be at 11 and 1. Um, and the way to kind of divvy it up is we're going to have, I hate doing this, but just it has to be some practical way so we're not turning people away, is we'll have like a registration so you can sign up for 11 or 1. That way you don't show up and then you have to get turned away and come back two hours later. We just want everyone to be able to plan in advance if it's raining. So we'll make that call Friday night. We'll have it posted on our website. If you've um, put your email on the little email list, we'll also send you a link Friday night. So just a heads up. So tonight... Friday night, and then next Sunday. So there's a little bit of logistics for us. Um, let's get into now the word of God together. John chapter 19. These are the final stages of the trial, the, um, the scenes leading right up to the cross. Let's read verses 1 through 16 together. Then Pilate took Jesus... And flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. 
Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to them, you will not speak to me? Do you not know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them, to be crucified. And so Lord, we thank you for your word. Even reading these words, Lord, it's almost too much to wrap our minds around and our hearts around. But I thank you for your spirit that makes Jesus known and understood to us. So Holy Spirit, we just ask, help us to behold the man Jesus today. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we consider a text like this, it's a familiar text. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really mindful that even just the, the few needs that I know that our own body has, the, 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 the financial needs, the health needs, the relational needs, like we are all, all people, we are needy people. We have many concerns, many questions we bring with us as we come to worship. And, you know, when you think about a text like this and, okay, how do we apply this helpfully? How does this meet all the needs? You know, I'll be honest, I, I'm just thankful the wisdom is not, the wisdom is not in me to, to help make all of those connections. But I know this, this is what I know, that as you behold Jesus, as you behold Jesus in his glory, as he is being crucified for your sins, I just know that he's sufficient for you. I, I don't know how to connect all the dots, but I know that as we together behold this man, that he can satisfy every desire 
of your heart. He can answer every question you have. He can remove your guilt and your sin and your shame. He can help you deal with your bitterness and unforgiveness. He is sufficient. And so how we're going to kind of frame our time in this text is together we will see six truths about Jesus. We're going to just behold Jesus together. And as we do so, John He's a, he is, man, the more I study this gospel, the more you see this was a masterpiece. What John does uniquely in our text is he proclaims through the words of the enemies of Jesus, glorious truth about Jesus. There is such irony in these verses because the the most glorious truths about Jesus come out of the mouths of his enemies in this text. It's just incredible irony. There's a psalm, I don't remember where it is, but it says, the wrath of man shall praise you. And even as man rebelled against their God, as these soldiers rebelled, as the Jews rebelled, as Pilate rebels, their very words are prophetic words about the glory of Jesus. And so John uniquely tells us this story, in a sense from their perspective from what they are saying and yet we will see the glory of our king as we see them speak and so the first truth we'll see six of them the first is this together we are going to behold the true king we will behold the true king let's look again at verses one through three then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him I'll just pause really quickly to flog, you've likely heard this. There was actually kind of three stages in Roman uh, law, if you will, of being flogged or beaten. There was a light stage where you would be kind of beaten with rods or fists. Then there was a, a more brutal stage where they would, they would whip you. But then the third is they would actually bind you to a pole. They would strip close from you and they would whip you with these leather straps with bone or metal or glass it embedded in the leather. And it would literally rip the flesh off of the person. It was preparation for crucifixion. And normally that extreme flogging happened right before crucifixion, honestly, because crucifixion is a, a brutal thing and it takes forever to kill someone. And so that's a helpful way to, to, to speed death along. Now, if you are a, a careful Bible reader, you will notice in this story, Jesus is flogged before he's finally condemned. And so very likely in verse one, this is one of the lighter beatings or floggings. This is likely Pilate trying to show some force, but he's still hoping maybe the Jews will let Jesus go. And so he hasn't condemned Jesus yet. This is just a kind of a, a easy flogging, if you will. And after this, before, right before he's crucified, the other gospels tell us, then he is flogged with the severest flogging where his flesh was literally ripped off his back. But this, this began likely as a kind of like a cursory, all right, we'll let some guys rough him up for a moment and let's see if that softens up the Jews. So that's, that's what happens in verse one. Now let's look at verse two. As the soldiers and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. Now pause there. There's, um, it's kind of a fascinating facet of middle, the Middle Eastern area. There are I th like dozens of plants that have thorns and we think about the fall and we think about that's where it went down. There's a lot of thorns in the Middle East, but scholars are, are 
their best guess is the thorns that went into the skull of Jesus. They're actually pretty different than all the, the paintings or represent, representations you've seen. They were likely a 12-inch thorn, a 12-inch thorn. And so they would wrap this whole thing together and it, 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 it would be just a ridiculous-looking thing that they would, they would place onto the skull and it would embed itself into the scalp and very likely this just massive, ridiculous-looking crown that they put on his head. Verse 2, and they arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. What the, the soldiers are doing in this moment is they're, they're creating a mock coronation of a king. They're making fun of Jesus. They're, they're placing this crown on him, and it, it's likely that one by one they would come up to him, they would bow before him, and then they would slap him in the face. Hail, king of the Jews. The next one would come up, bow down, slap him in the face. Hail, king of the Jews, mocking a coronation where, where the, the true subject would come and bow before the king and would kiss the king and would hail the king. These soldiers in this moment are mocking Jesus, hailing him, as the king of the Jews. This is a mockery of a coronation. Yet we know that he is the king of the Jews. We know that he is the king of kings. He is the true king. This, in this moment, we have a glimpse of the glory of our king. Our king submitted himself to this. He willingly laid down his life. This is his initiative. This is what your king is like. And if you will, flip with me briefly to Philippians chapter two. I wanna read just the first part of this chapter. This is a explanation, a fleshing out of our King Jesus and what he is really like as he is a king unlike any other king who has ever lived. Philippians chapter two says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is the King of Kings. He is your King. And if you have yet to recognize him as your King, and if you die in rebellion to him, there will still come a day when you will bow your knee before him. And you will proclaim, this is, this is the King of Kings. And so our invitation today is that we would all recognize, behold our King who has humbled himself. He didn't come to be served, he came to serve sinners. And he calls all of us not only to behold him, but to bow our knee and proclaim, you are my King. The second truth we see of Christ in our text is, is that we, we ought to behold the true man. I love this point. Look at verses four and five. Behold the true man. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing, out to, bringing him out to you that you may know I find no guilt in him. And just to pause for a moment, three times out of Pilate's mouth, he says, there is no guilt in him, no guilt in him, no guilt in him. What other human being could that be said about? Which one of you would stand up and say, there is, there is no guilt in me? But Christ, from his judge, from his enemy proclaimed, there's no guilt in this man. And so verse five, so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate said to them, behold the man. Now, if you can remember a few weeks back, we saw the beginning of chapter 18 that the, the cross and the resurrection is framed in a garden. Do you remember that if you were here? The, the author John is intentionally wanted us to see now where he was arrested, there was a garden. And we see him say later where he was buried, there was a garden. And then we see as he rises from the dead on the first day of the week, the uh, disciples go and Mary goes and Jesus isn't there. And she starts talking to this man and she thinks he's the gardener and she starts speaking with him. John wants us to be thinking about Genesis 1 through 3 as we see the crucifixion of Christ. Now there's a unique connection in this moment. We see the man walk out. Now, if you can recall, what is Adam's name? Well, it simply means man or the man. And we see the man walk out with a crown of thorns. Now, the thorns is the quintessential symbol of the fall, of the curse, the result of the rebellion of Adam. Not only did Adam fall and his relationship with God broken, but the earth itself was cursed and it brought forth thorns and thorns represent rebellion against God and this cursed world. Now suddenly we see another man come out, but this man has no guilt. Yet he's wearing a crown of thorns and what is just incredible is in Genesis chapter three, verse 22, there's a, a phrase that comes out of Yahweh's mouth after Adam has sinned. He says, behold, the man we have made. It is very, very likely. In fact, I am convinced John wants us to see a connection here between Adam, the first man, and Jesus, the second man. The man who came with no sin and no guilt and yet took 
the curse, our guilt upon himself, literally bearing the curse on his head. And we are to behold a guiltless man. We are to behold the true man. We are beholding as we see Christ's suffering a perfect man, man as he ought to be. And we are to have hope because you and I are not perfect. You and I are not, we have contributed to the curse in our sin against God. And yet a better Adam came, the second Adam came, a guiltless Adam came bearing the curse that you and I have brought through our sin and he has taken it upon himself. And so not only is he a true king, he is a true man. Third, we are to behold the true son of God. Look at verses six through nine. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. We see here Pilate, what he's saying by take him yourselves, he can't legally say that. They're not allowed to legally crucify him. He's just disgusted at the Jews. He sees through the Jews. He knows this man is innocent. He's just, it's an insult. You take the man. His blood's on your hands. And so he kind of shoots back at them, but they cry, crucify, crucify. Now, the crucifixion was the, the Roman um, style of execution for the lowest slave or the lowest criminal where in the public square they would hang naked and slowly suffocating and slowly dying. It was just a public display of the cruelty of Rome. It was a warning to all of culture. Do not rebel against Rome and here the Jews are crying out that Rome would crucify him. And then look what they say in verse seven. The Jews answered him, we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. It's likely they're speaking of Leviticus 24, 16, which says if anyone blasphemes the name of God, he is to be killed and it is absolutely crystal clear. Don't let anyone ever tell you Jesus never claimed to be God. Just read the gospel of John. He claims to be God in a dozen different ways, primarily through his I am statements before Abraham was I am. He is, he is identifying himself with Yahweh of the Old Testament. He says, I and the Father are one. And so the Jews were right. He was claiming to be God, yet they were wrong by thinking, by declaring he was not the son of God. And so they're incensed. This man is blaspheming. He ought to die. Now, now notice what John highlights for us. There's so much attention given to Pilate in this story. There's so much focus on his emotions and his statements and his reactions. And look what Pilate does. When Pilate heard, verse eight, this statement, he was even more afraid he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. It says more afraid. We are to recognize Pilate is just a torn man right now. He's thinking of his boss, Caesar. What is Caesar gonna do? He's thinking of the pressure of the crowds before him. He's, we know from other gospels, he's heard from his wife. Hey, don't 
touch that man. So he's thinking about his wife. And, and what's right before him is an obviously innocent man. He's pulled in all of these directions and he's not sure what he is to do. And we even can see that he's probably suspicious. He asked Jesus, where are you from? He's not literally asking like, what town were you born in? It's very likely he's considering the accusation, is this a son of God? Is the man before me from heaven? And so he just asked Jesus, where are you from? Who is this man? It's another facet of the gospel of John. John focuses in on Jesus' relationship and interactions with a specific individual. Think about um, in chapter three, his conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus is kind of putting him on the spot. Who do you say that I am? Then we go to chapter four and the woman at the well, right? And who do you say that I am? Or the man who was healed, who was blind, and Jesus is, is speaking with him. We see his, his, his relationship and interaction with Mary and with Martha, with the disciples. And here we see this intentional highlight. Jesus is, is confronting Pilate and Pilate is wondering, who is this man? Where is he from? And what John really wants you to consider as he records this question is, how about you, listener? What do you say about Jesus? The Jews are rejecting him as the son of God and Pilate's confused and he's wondering, but who do you say that he is? And John tells us in chapter 20, verse 30, he wrote this gospel that you, that you would believe that he was the son of God, that you would know that he is truly the son of God. Number four, next we see, and we, John wants us to behold true authority, true authority. Let's look at his response, Jesus's response to Pilate in verses 10 through 11. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Pilate is thinking on a human plane. I I can release you, Jesus. How are you not trying to get yourself off the hook here? Do you know who I am? Do you know the authority I have? And yet look what Jesus says to him. He speaks up in verse 11. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. First of all, it's significant, and this is good for us in our moment in history to recognize that governors do have authority from heaven. Just have to recognize that. Pilate had authority. Our governor has authority. And that authority is not an ultimate authority, It's an authority that has been given to them by God. It's a delegated authority, which means that those who have authority in this earth, be it governors, be it husbands over their family, be it uh, pastors in the church, their authority is is a limited authority under God. And it is an authority that is not inherent in them, but it comes from God and ultimately they will give an account to God for their authority. It's just important to recognize Jesus doesn't say, you don't have authority. He acknowledges his authority, but he wants Pilate to remember where that authority comes from. He wants Pilate to remember there is a true, ultimate, sovereign authority even over this moment. Pilate, the Jews, 
uh, the soldiers and all, all of our current governors, they are under the authority of God. And I want us just to remember that even as injustice occurs in the world, it does not do so apart from the sovereign design and authority of God. We just have to remember that. We have to settle our hearts the same way Christ was settled in this moment. And if you wanna turn quickly, I'm gonna read from Acts 4 for us just to remind us of an important truth, one that we will need in our time in history to continually reflect on. You know, one of my favorite uh, historians, his name's Carl Truman. He's alive right now. He's a phenomenal author. Um, and he he says the moment that, that the church in America, in the West, is heading into, um, what it most resembles in history is actually the earliest church. It's the church in Rome. It's a church in that type of environment. And he says, if you just want to have um, great encouragement and guidance for how we are to interact with the world around us. We ought to study carefully the book of Acts in those first kind of couple hundred years of the early church. That's a, the, the moment that's most uh, similar to ours. And so let's do that for just a moment. Let's look at the believers. In Acts 4, Peter and John were arrested for proclaiming the gospel. They said, do not preach Christ. And they, you know, we love their answer. You know what? We're going to obey God and not man. We will continue to preach Christ. And then verse 23, as they're released from prison, I want to read just a, a few verses down to 31. It says this, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, and listen what they say. These are persecuted men. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in the city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. He, they're saying there's a lot of injustice going on. But look at their perspective on evil in the world. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Yes, the apostles used that word and believed in it. God is sovereign even over these wicked men and their wicked actions. They were evil. They sinned. And yet in the mind of God that's bigger than our mind, it is somehow according to the foreordained plan of God. God does not only allow evil. The cross was not an accident that he allowed. It was a predestined plan. Now, if we can't accept that somehow people are responsible for their sin and God is sovereign over their sin, then, you know, we have to accept it. It's not the Bible that's guiding our thinking. But in the Bible, we see wicked men held accountable for their sin, yet sinning, according to the purposes of the holy God in whom there is no sin and no evil and no injustice. 
And so they say, verse 29, now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to, this is our prayer. This is our prayer for our cultural moment. Grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. There is a true authority right now over California over America. And it's, it's not these elected officials. It's God. He has sovereignly ordained even the, the, the wicked men who rule unjustly. He was sovereign over the cross and he is sovereign today. And so we settle our hearts as Jesus did, as these apostles did, as the early church did. God is sovereign. And so we will proclaim the truth And come what may, we may be killed, we may be thrown in prison, but we need not uh, have our hearts worked up over legitimate evil we see in our world. There is a true authority. Number five, and just to recap, Jesus is the true king. He's the true man. He's the true son of God. He's the true authority. We have two more. Next we see the true judge, verses 12 through 13. Turn back to our text, John 19, verses 12 through 13 says this. From then on, and we see the injustice of Pilate here, but Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. And this is the story of Pilate. He's convinced Jesus is is innocent, but he gets pressure and he goes back and forth. He's just going back and forth, back and forth, and he's seeking to release them. And the Jews feel, oh my goodness, what if Jesus is released? What if it doesn't happen? And they just pour everything on that they can. And they threaten Pilate with this this, uh, particular expression that's profound historically. You you would not be Caesar's friend. Now, that became a a formal... um, like a title for people who are in the inner circle of Caesar. Uh, Tiberius Caesar, the Caesar at this moment, was a notoriously paranoid man, and he would constantly be killing any political threat. And he began to have this group called Caesar's Friends, where these were like the loyalist guys around him. And this is an amazing uh, um, historical fact. So Pilate, had a mentor. This guy's name was Sajanus. He was his mentor. He was the one who got Pilate appointed, and Sajanus was in that circle of Caesar's friend. It was a small circle, and we also know that Sajanus betrayed Caesar, and he was removed and executed, and so Pilate's mentor was known as a traitor to Caesar. And so certainly that would be over Pilate's head and he would be paranoid to display, look, I'm loyal to Caesar. And and so the Jews just hit him where it hurts. They make this political jab at him. If you don't do what we say, maybe Caesar is gonna hear from us. That maybe you're letting this other king rule and reign in Jerusalem. And we see that though Pilate is convinced Jesus is innocent, We see this political play is ultimately what moves the hand of Pilate. 
And so verse 13 says, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. And what that essentially meant is he took his formal judgment seat and proclaimed Jesus condemned. Jesus will be crucified. He sits down. Um, and another uh, literal translation or transliteral of the, the word judgment seat is the bema seat. It was a legal seat that the judge would sit on to proclaim his judgments. Now, the New Testament picks up on this language in a, a, an incredibly rich and ironic way because it is actually Christ who will judge from a bema seat one day. And Pilate will stand before the true judge as he sits on his bema seat. And Pilate will be held accountable for this faulty judgment. And so we remember not only is Jesus the true authority, he is also the true judge. There will be justice in this world. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And our culture right now is crying out for justice. They're crying out for justice. And yet we know, we see what the judges of this world are like. Judges in this world, even in this nation, can be bought, can be threatened, can go against their better judgment to preserve themselves. There will never be true justice until Christ is seated on his throne, ruling and reigning in his kingdom and all is made well. So we look for that day and we remember there is a true judge. We can even be settled in our soul when we see injustice. We don't say, ah, yeah, you know, we don't care about it, but we can know there will be justice one day because Jesus is the true judge. And finally and lastly, what John through the Holy Spirit, wants us to see, and it's the saddest picture of our text. We are to behold the rejected king of the Jews. The rejected king. Verse 14 through 16. Now, as it, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. In that moment, we read of the formal, official rejection of the nation of Israel of their Messiah. In that moment, as a nation, they have rejected their king. We have no king but Caesar. This is a theme of the Old Testament. God showed his people, I am to be your king, and we see the Jews constantly longing for an earthly king, wanting a king to be like the nations. Samuel said, no, Yahweh's to be your king, and they said, no, we want a king, and so they, they received Saul, the king that, that they deserved, a king like the world. He was tall and beautiful, and he had a charismatic personality, and he was the leader that they wanted. This was an earthly 
king. And yet we see that he was not a king after Yahweh's heart. And we see David as this foretaste of a true king, one who loved Yahweh. But we saw promised it would be through David's son, the true king would come. And so they were waiting for the Messiah, their king to come. And in Christ, he came. He was the king of the Jews. And yet in this very moment, in verse 15, they reject not only Christ as their Messiah, they reject Yahweh as their God. We have no king but Caesar. And it's so easy to be indignant at the Jews. When we, you ever read the Old Testament and you think, who the, these people are insane. What are they thinking? And, and we ought to have that. That's a legitimate response. What are they thinking? Your Messiah has come and suddenly you just say, we're, we're Romans, we're not Jews. We have no king but Caesar. When their own king is standing before them, And yet what John wants for us is to recognize even as Christ was killed during the Passover feast is we have all rejected Yahweh as our king. We've all rejected him. We have all sinned. Like Pilate, we have all honored Christ in one way and yet under pressure we we do something else. Like the soldiers here we we act we 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 may take it we may jump on a bandwagon where we're afraid to be man me is this right should we treat jesus this way i'm not going to say anything let's just go along like the jews we seek our own righteousness we seek our own kingdom we want to live in a kingdom according to our standards we're just like these men we really are And so the beauty of even this portion of scripture ends in verse 16. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And that word again, delivered in the context of Passover, as it says, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. We are to remember that though we are like these men, God has provided a lamb, the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world we are in some way or another like these men and yet christ came as the true king as the true man as the true uh, passover lamb that if you would recognize i am a sinner and i need a savior i believe that christ is the son of god that your sins would be placed on him. The curse would be placed upon him on the cross. And as John says, in believing in Christ, you would have life in his name. And so God, I ask even now that you would help all of us to behold the man, Jesus Christ. And I ask, Lord, that we would see the glory of Christ. Lord, that though we have sinned and are like these men, Jesus, you came as the true king, displaying unspeakable humility. You came as the sinless man, 
the true Adam. And as our new representative, we thank you for the righteousness that we can have because you were the blameless one. Jesus, we believe and and remember that you are the son of God. You are God of God. You are the same in essence and glory and majesty as your father. You are God himself. We remember you are the true authority over this world, even over suffering and sin. And you are able to turn those things for good. We remember you are the true judge and we will all stand before you one day. And so we, Lord, look to you as our Passover lamb, our righteousness, our forgiveness, the one who gives us life. We need you, Jesus. And I thank you, Jesus, that in these characteristics of yourself and the many, many more that there are, that you are sufficient for us and our needs. You are sufficient for our sins and our guilt. You are sufficient to give us life and joy in your name. So Spirit of God, I ask you would take these things, these truths about Christ. You would place them on our heart. You would lead us in repentance where we ought to repent and in faith and in hope where we need that, Lord. 